Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today, we're joined by Danny Garcia, who's directed several amazing music documentaries. As a bonus, he's also done several spaghetti westerns, and who doesn't love those? The focus of our chat today is his latest film, Night Clubbing, The Birth of Punk Rock in New York City. Welcome, Danny. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I understand you're in New York City today, even, uh, where your film has just premiered. So that's very cool. I hope you had a good turnout. Yeah, yeah, it's been great, man, so far. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your movie. Uh, Nightclubbing documents Max's Kansas City as, quote, the birthplace of punk rock. I'm curious, how, how did you learn of Max's? What was your introduction? Well, uh, when I was a teenager, I was really into Johnny Thunder's they, uh, you know, the Heartbreakers put out an album called Heartbreakers Life with Maxis. So, um, you know, that's that that was basically my introduction. And then later on, I would learn, you know, about the Velvet and everybody who played there and stuff, you know. It's a definitive uh, Heartbreakers album, too. I have that somewhere in my house on, on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite Jerry Nolan not being there with them that night. It's a great album. Definitely. Uh, Max's opened in 1965, and that was eight years before the more heralded CBGBs down the road. But they did not add music until 1969, and it was the so-called back room at Max's that was the prize that featured hipsters and models and movie stars. Can you tell us more about that? Max's was a restaurant, and in the back, they had the back room where... Andy Warhol would hang out there every night with his troupe. You know, the factory was around the corner, and uh, it was very convenient for them. And Mickey Ruskin, the original owner, he was like an art aficionado. And, you know, he loved freaky people, you know. And um, so he would only let in people who were, you know, interesting looking or 
somebody that was not, you know, the nine to five or type that actually would go to Max's during the day for lunch, you know, office people and so on. At night, it was a different story. It was just like a, a freak show, you know, a parade of, you know, uh, weirdos, basically. And that's, that's what helped create the scene. And there's a lot of those people and some great, you know, backstage kind of footage in your movie. Alice Cooper, I was surprised he was in your film quite a bit. How did you get to him? Well, my co-producer, Mike Schnapp, he used to work in the record industry back in the day. He worked at Epic Records and um, he worked doing promo with Alice and other big names. So, you know, he got in touch with the manager and it took us a you know, a long while to get him, but he actually did it. He wanted to be interviewed for it. You know, Max is a very important part of his life and his career, so he wanted to be present, you know. And it's hard to believe that he's one of the, the straighter edge people in your movie who provides a pretty, uh, yeah. you know, compelling narrative. I mean, he told a great story of George Harrison, who I would not have thought would have been in Max's. A story where George sat at a table with, you know, full of women and a bag of rubies. Can you tell that story? Yeah, well, basically, um, George apparently would carry a bag of rubies, like a little pouch, pouch of rubies. And then once he figured out which girl he wanted to spend the night with, he would, you know, put a ruby in front of her. And if she picked it up, it was uh, it was a done deal. That's what Alice says in the film. <laughs> That's an amazing story. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the Warhol crowd, and they, they really seemed to own the back room. Was that your impression, you know, that, that it was really the Warhols and then everybody else? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they were a big troop. It was a big crew, you know. There was a lot of people, and they were very colorful and interesting, and you had photographers, and you had actresses and actors and you know, models and, you know, all sorts of artists hanging out with them. And then the rest of the New York artists started hanging out at Max's. Obviously, you know, Warhol and his crowd, they were like the main people there, you know, many times. And then you had all the rockers come late, you know, later, like Iggy and Bowie and Alice Cooper and, you know, the Velvet and the New York Dolls, Suicide and so on. So, I mean, you know, Malcolm McLaren, when we did Looking for Johnny, we got this audio interview and he mentions the dolls being like a follow-up to Andy Warhol's crowd, you know? Right, right. Because he had taken over uh, management for them, I believe, at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, uh, the dolls became like a house band at Max's at some point, you know? Yeah, that, that seemed to be their shtick, I think. I knew they were at a museum and somewhere in, in New York to begin, and they played a couple times a week. And then Max's, of course, was another step up. And, of course, you interviewed Jane slash Wayne County, and she is featured in your movie throughout and tells some outrageous stories. What was it like interviewing her? Well, we did that in the distance because we did this movie throughout the pandemic, so we weren't allowed to travel and I had to send like camera crews to like different spots to interview people. And that was one you know, the case with Jane. 
But, you know, she was great. And once I saw the interview, I realized we actually had a documentary. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, she was always around that scene and, and also is a, both a hilarious and a very good storyteller. Yeah, yeah, no, she's really awesome and funny and outrageous, you know, so it makes for a really good um, documentary. Definitely. It, it set the stage very well for that scene. So you mentioned the COVID thing. And, uh, you know, when I saw the premiere up here in Boston, you had talked a little bit afterwards during the Q&A and, and mentioned that this was entirely made during COVID. Yeah. How difficult was it to pull off these these interviews? You said you sent camera crews out. It wasn't done just on a laptop or something. Yeah, no, we had to send, like, you know, cameras, camera crew, cameramen to different spots, you know, like uh, Billy Idol is in L.A., Jane County is in Atlanta, Alice Cooper is in Arizona, and we couldn't travel, so we had to figure it out, how are we going to do this, you know, and basically we just had to send people to their homes or studios and shoot them there, and then... They would send us the footage, and that's how we did it, you know, basically. So did you track down local camera people, or, or you sent the people you were familiar with out on the road? Well, I did have people already in Atlanta and Los Angeles, et cetera, that helped with the cost, you know. So we were lucky like that, but otherwise, yeah, you have to look for local crews, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure that made it difficult to get, uh, you know, perhaps some other folks like David Johansson or Iggy Pop, as you mentioned, and their their performances were legendary. You did get Sylvan Sylvan from the New York Dolls, and as you mentioned, Billy Idol. Uh, were they just looking forward to doing this? Well, I mean, Sylvain, you know, he died a few years ago, but uh, we had that interview from the Looking for Johnny uh, archives. And he was talking about Maxis and stuff, so obviously we had to use that. Same with Marty Thau and Lee Black Childers or Alan Vega. Yeah, Billy was really into it, you know. Billy's first gig in America as a solo artist was at Maxis. And it wasn't like a, an official gig. He just jumped on stage and they did a few tracks, a few songs, just because he wanted to be on stage at Maxis because of his love of Max's, you know. Yeah, he wanted to be in the film. And, you know, he was very invested emotionally in the whole thing. He really, I mean, Max's was very important for that first wave of punks, you know, whether they were British or American. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I had no idea. And, you know, my first exposure to that scene, I was a kid down in Florida, and it was mostly through Cream Magazine. You know, I followed this world of far, far away and, and listened to the music. And uh, I had no idea that uh, Max's lasted as long into, like, Billy Idol's, you know, time. Well, yeah, 81, December 81, that's when they closed. And Billy was just then in New York starting his new band you know with steve stevens and that was the first ever gig they did they were still rehearsing you know at that point and uh billy's drummer was in another band and he was playing maxis so he was like yo let us play a few tracks you know and that's what they did you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon media Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're speaking with Danny Garcia, who's the director of a fantastic new doc called Nightclubbing, The Birth of Punk Rock in New York City. I want to I ask you, uh, you grew up in Spain, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Barcelona. Yeah. Barcelona, great town, great city, I should say. How did you come across punk rock over there? Because I know a lot of your older, previous films, rather, you know, you mentioned Johnny Thunders, there's a great one on Steve Bader's. Uh, how did, you know, punk rock get into your life? Well, uh, I was a little boy really and um my brother started bringing records you know i mean in the mid 70s my brothers were listening to frank zappa and pink floyd and jethro tull and horrible music (laughs) that really did my head in you know i was a little kid they were torturing me with that shit you know and at some point the middle brother, Sergi, started bringing these magazines with like Johnny Rotten on the cover and stuff. And I obviously could sense something was changing. And then he brought London Calling and, you know, a few albums, which really did um, excite me, you know, for the first time in my life. I was like, wow, this is great. I love this music, you know. So, you know, I, I got into it very, very young and started buying records. And that's the story, man. It's all been downhill ever since. <laughs> well, very similar story. I was more surrounded by uh, Southern rock, which I like some of, but uh, not at that time. And once once the whole like Stooges and Iggy and New York Dolls gets into your life, it just changed everything. You know, it changed the whole way I looked at music. Right. I'm wondering, having done a film on Johnny Thunders and Steve Bader's, who we mentioned, of The Dead Boys, they all performed at Max's. So I'm curious... Was the seed for this film, 
you know, started in either of those two projects or it was a result of, you know, a recurring location that kept popping up or what? Actually, Tommy Dean, the second owner of Maxis, called me on, on Skype, man, you know, after I had done the Thunders documentary and he really liked it and he wanted me to make a documentary on Maxis. But then, you know, he died shortly after, and, and that was that. But that was, you know, I had that in the back of my mind, you know. And then doing something about the whole New York 70s scene was something that I was interested in because, you know, there's so many bands from that scene that I like, you know, like Television and, oh, man. and Blondie and Ramones and Suicide and, you know, it's just so much great stuff and creativity. So, I, you know, I, I thought about, you know, maybe I could do something about the New York scene in the 70s and blah, blah, blah. And once we received the seed footage live at Max's, that's when the whole thing started. Yeah, I, I'm guessing, I'm drawing the conclusion that there was something about the CD rundown, bankrupt New York City that drew you in as opposed to, say, London, which, you know, was a couple, maybe a year or so ahead of New York, you know, depending upon where you count the beginning. But uh, it was it was New York then that kind of drew you in. Well, I love this city. <clears throat> I love London, too. I love the first wave of punk. Uh, New York punk and London punk, you know, British. Um, I'm not really interested in second waves of anything. But yeah, I mean, I love New York City and the culture that's brought to the world and to freaks like us. <laughs> Basically, it's a bit of uh, my ode to New York City, you know what I mean? Definitely. And, you know, I should I should mention, you know, as a graphics and visual person that um, there's just some amazing shots that seem to be variations of the same one of Max's, uh, you know, it first popped up on the live Velvet Underground record. And they're in your movie. And, you know, I even bought one of your movie posters because it's such a great scene. And with the title Nightclubbing, it just fits. I'm curious, was that an instantly an iconic, recognizable shot that you just knew told part of the story? Well, the photographer Alan Tannenbaum suggested that shot. He took it when he still was a... Um, taxi driver in New York City before he became like a professional photographer. Dude, there's a great picture I took inside of my taxi. Da -da -da. Check it out. And yeah, I saw it and I was like, yeah, this is it. This is the cover. This is the poster. You know? It's fantastic. There's some incredible historical footage in the film too. Was that difficult to locate? And how did you get it? Was it personal archives, friends, licensing, you know, networking? It's always difficult to get footage, uh, especially when you're working with uh, limited budgets. We were very lucky. I mean, once <clears throat> we had all the archive from the, you know, Thunders movie and the Steve movie and so on, we had a lot of footage already. We just had to contact the owners and, you know, negotiate with them. And uh, we're very lucky because uh, Steve's friends, the Kira brothers, who actually took Steve in when he was living in his car in Cleveland before Frankenstein and the Dead Boys and stuff. And these two brothers, they took Steve in and 
they had a super eight camera and they started shooting the dead boys and well frankenstein first the dead boys then going to new york city to visit steve and they kept filming stuff but they also had new york dolls footage and stooges footage from 1973 and they gave it to us for free that's how we managed to make this movie also thanks to people like bob gruen who gave us a break in terms of licensing fees and stuff and he's got amazing stuff that he shot at maxis like blondie jane county heartbreakers tough darts so that's how we did it basically by begging borrowing and stealing <laughs> You didn't hear that here. Bob Gruen, we should point out, is one of the legendary rock photographers. And I've seen him in a, in a few documentaries. And he, he's just so well-spoken and clear and just, just a great you know person from that time to help tell that story. Yeah, I mean, he's got great memory. He just published a book, Right Place, Right Time. And I'm reading it. And it's really, really good. I recommend it to everybody. I, it's just amazing how he can recall all those details. Definitely. I, uh, I've got to put that one on my list because I know his work very well. And uh, we've had a few interviews with photographers, which is sometimes difficult because it's hard to talk about a static image that your listeners can't see. But the good ones, and I'm sure Bob is one of those, can tell that story pretty easily. I mean, he does it in, you know, through his pictures. It's amazing, this book, because you can see that he really created his own luck, you know, which was, it's all we do, basically. We, you know, nobody's calling me to make any documentaries about Whitney Houston or anything, you know, so I have to, I have to create my own opportunities. And that's why Bob did from the beginning, you know, he was a hustler, hustling in New York City, early 70s with his photos and his archive is, is just incredible, really. Did you try, at least through him at all, to get to, to Debbie Harry of Blondie? I learned from your film. We always try. We're always denied. Denied. Iggy Pop's manager is always cock-blocking us. <laughs> I mean, the guy's doing Gucci advertisement right, right now. Right. It, you know, I mean, they, they do BBC interviews and HBO interviews and whatever, but they, they're not very interested in, this, in the little guy, which is us. Right. It should be the opposite, really. They should be supporting the little guy, but, you know. People are establishment now, you know? What I yeah, mean? the people they sprang from. But, you know, with Debbie Harry, I find that unfortunate, too, because I learned from your film, I did not realize that she was a waitress at Max's. Yeah, yeah, she started She started there, basically. I mean, that would have... You know, I mean, she was, a, she was a Playboy bunny, too. You know? <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that's interesting is ultimately your film journeys to CBGBs. I think there's an argument which was the true birthplace of punk rock. I, I would probably agree that it was Max's just because of the, the years. You know, you really center on the difference and perhaps the competition. What was your take on that? Uh, it's typical New York rivalry between two clubs. I mean, that happens everywhere, you know. Uh, at some point, they became competition, you know. and But, you know, the same sort of bands played in both places. I went to CBGB's myself. The first time I came to New York in, in the 90s, you know, and there was obviously nothing going on. I was 20 years too late, but, you know, CBGB was there until, you know, what, 2006 or something, mm -hmm. you know, fairly recent, you know, people assume that's the birthplace of punk rock. And in some ways it was, but, you know, punk rock goes back to the cavemen. You know, it's an attitude. So Hank Williams was punk rock and Orson Welles was punk rock. 
many, many artists is because it's the attitude. It's you doing something that goes against the grain, that goes against what society thinks is all right, and you do it anyway. Uh, you know, you mentioned CBs and going there. I never got down there, and I certainly never got to Max's. Uh, I did do a lot in the rat here in Boston, but um, uh, CBs became a brand. And I know that I think they replicated one in an airport. It might have even been New York City airport, which is just so kind of, you know, outside of where they started. It was just an awning, really. It was really nothing. There was not a replica of CBs or anything. It was, you know, it's just a business these days. And it's, it's a trademark. And, you know, people try to make money one way or another. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there was nothing going on, really. Max is... The club is really the star of your movie, and the original site closed in 81, and the owners of Max's had a hand in its demise due to some incredibly stupid behavior, and you follow that throughout your movie. Can you just give us the dime version of what they did? Um, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there was, a, there was a bit of a counterfeit operation going on in the basement of Max's. It just sort of got out of hand, and that was really, in the end, the reason why they had to close the joint. And we'll leave it at that so everyone will go see your movie because we're not talking counterfeit records here. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, Tommy D. Cole, when he called me, he explained this to me, and I was like, what? I couldn't believe it, you know? So I was like, listen, this has to be part of the movie. This outrageous story you just stole me, you know, it has to be in the film, you know? And he was laughing and stuff. It's a quite outrageous thing, you know? Very much a New York story. Um, Tommy was this sort of Brooklyn dude, a big gangster. I mean, he definitely had the look. Yeah. And it's just unfortunate, but it's just it's just too funny, man, you know, when you think about it. Definitely. And I, and I appreciate that because it shows that this was a story of that club, uh, not just, you know, I mean, the music that helped build it for sure, but also, you know, as you mentioned, the restaurant and the character of Tommy and, and then what happened to his demise. It's all there and it's, it's fascinating. Um, let me ask you a final question. Actually, I've got a couple more, if that's okay. I'm curious, what do you think the legacy of Max's Kansas City is or, or will be if it's not defined yet? Well, um, what we have in the end is the music, you know? I mean, those guys like, you know, the dogs and suicide and so on. I mean, if we're still talking about them, it's because of the music. And, and Maxis really, I mean, it was, uh, it was a mecca, really. And to me, I think that's the mecca. I mean, you know, you just have to look at the list of people who, hung out there and played there and you know the stuff that was created right there bands were signed there i mean aerosmith Bruce springsteen were signed there by clive davis you know it's a really a, a historic place and uh like i said for me it's really the mecca you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon media we're speaking with Danny Garcia, who's the director of Nightclubbing, the birth of punk rock in New York City. I wanted to ask you, at the screening I attended here in Boston, you also premiered a fascinating 20-minute documentary on Sid Vicious. What can you tell us about the final curtain? All of that footage came to you complete and by surprise, is that correct? Yeah, once I did Sad Vacation, this documentary on Sid and Nancy, I had this message from this Japanese guy telling me 
he had footage of Sid live at Max. And I flipped out because that, you know, as far as everybody knew, that didn't exist. And he was like, yeah, yeah, let me send it to you. You know, he did. And I was like, wow, that's really something else because it's really good. The quality, the sound, the band sounds great. So I was really like gobsmacked, you know, and that's the, really the genesis of nightclubbing as well, because I started interviewing people talking about Sid and Maxis, and then I would ask people about Maxis. And obviously the stories about Maxis were far superior and more entertaining than the Sid stuff, which was kind of lame. So I decided to put like a 20-minute documentary on the, you know, called The Final Curtain, so we could show all of the footage that was given to us by this dude in Japan. Because in nightclubbing, we only show like, you know, a chunk of a song because there's just, just chunks of songs, you know, it's not like a full concert or anything that he sent us. He just sent us whatever he shot right. on his Super 8 camera. And it's just chunks, little bits of here and there, you know. So that's that's the reason why why we did Final Curtain, so we could actually show all of the footage that was given to us, you know. It is really incredible. And uh, Sid and Nancy are an absolute train wreck in that film. I mean, the music is great, but those guys are just, you know, hanging on barely. And I think that, if I'm not mistaken, that was his final concert ever, correct? Correct, yeah. The footage belongs to the very last show he did at Max's 12 days before Nancy died. Wow. Yeah, it's historic footage. It's historic footage. That's why we had to put it all in there. I can promise people who go see it, you've never seen anything like it, and that's on every level. So um, you're you're doing kind of the film uh, festival circuit. Is that right right now? We're doing festivals. We're doing private screenings to show the film. Everywhere we can, you know. I mean, we're underground filmmakers. Not, uh, We can't show our films everywhere. So wherever we have a chance to do so, we have to take it, you know. And that's what we're doing now, trying to show the film in as many as many cities as possible, you know. Is there some place our listeners could go to find out where the schedule is or where it might be playing near them? Yeah, um, there is a Facebook page, Night Clubbing, nightclubbing doc and they'll find all the info there where the, where the screenings are taking place and so on and uh, the film will be released officially in November in record store day we're putting out a special edition of the film and that contains also the soundtrack oh fantastic yeah it, the soundtrack is really great I mean it has you know, contains a lot of New York bands that, you know, they're, that didn't make it huge, like Demulators, Big Girls, Mystery Girls, Testers, Ruby and the Rednecks. I mean, there's a lot of music in it that don't come from, like, big known bands. We don't have the dough to license Ramones and Blondie and so on. But, you know, luckily we know a bunch of people that are willing to help. And we got great, great music in the film. Bands like Shrapnel, Cassette Stimulators, uh, Heart Attack, which were Jesse Malin's first uh, hardcore band when he was a teenager. 
there's really, really, really great stuff in the soundtrack. I'm really proud of it. I'm really happy that it's coming out, you know, with the film. Definitely. Collector's edition. You know? Very cool. Well, we will post that on our Facebook page as well. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, DJ Uncle Mike, I think he's the Mike who is with you. He mentioned how you just have a knack for getting these documentaries done. A lot of people say they're doing it. And then three or four years later, like myself, they're still doing it. But you get them done. And there's a couple of classics. This one is great. Looking for Johnny. I'm a huge Johnny Thunders fan. The Stiv one is amazing. And, and maybe we can have you back after this run and talk about some of those as well. Yeah, whenever you want, Ben. You know, it's been a pleasure for me to make these documentaries. I mean, they're hard work, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, headaches that come with making these things. But at the end of the day, we have a pretty decent body of work that we've done with, you know, F all money, you know. <laughs> In most, most cases, especially especially Steve, we didn't have any money to make Steve, you know. Yeah. So that, that was done thanks to uh, Steve's friends who actually collaborated and uh, gave us footage and photography and music rights and so on, you know. Otherwise, we couldn't have done that. Yeah. And same applies to nightclubbing, really, you know. It, it's been uh, amazing that the help we've gotten from people like Sonny Vincent from Testers or, you know, photographers or, uh, you know, uh, even amateur people, like Sinsters, people who were hanging out and taking photos of Johnny Thunders and whatever, and they were sending them to us. I don't know. I mean, we've had a lot of help from people. Otherwise, we couldn't do this, basically. Well, Danny, you are a true punk rocker, and I mean that in uh, every positive sense of the word. So thank you for your movies, and thank you for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.